Bible, if you have one, to Isaiah chapter 6. I understand that you're working through Isaiah at the moment uh, as a church in your immersed groups. And uh, Isaiah is a really important Old Testament book because of all the connections that are made to the New Testament. It's one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. Um, so just uh, look to see how many times as you're reading through uh, the, that Isaiah is quoted. There, there will be passages that seem familiar to you that you hadn't maybe realized were in the Old Testament because you've just read them in the New Testament because they're quoted. So let's, um, let's pray uh, and then let's jump into Isaiah 6. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, acknowledge this morning that we need you in so many ways. Lord, we recognize that we are lost without you, that uh, we need your guidance, we need to live under your lordship. Lord, we need a savior. And Lord, we pray that you would please help us this morning to see our need for you and to recognize who you are. Lord, help us to catch a glimpse of who you are. Lord, speak to us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. If we could have the next slide. One weekend, a uh, number of years ago, our family was at a shopping center in Vintuk in Namibia, where we lived at the time. And it was there in that shopping center that we had a surprise encounter. There weren't many people in the shop we were in that day, but there was another man uh, dressed in a leather jacket browsing the store, uh, surrounded a few meters away by a security detail. It turns out that President Hage Heinhob, the president of Namibia, likes shopping. Now, his security wouldn't let me anywhere near him, but our two younger children were allowed to speak to him, and he very kindly took a few minutes to talk with them. It was a memorable day because we'd never met a president before. Now, maybe that doesn't impress you much. Uh, maybe you've met famous people before. Um, but look, what, what if you could meet the king? What if you could meet King Charles III? Imagine getting an invitation to Buckingham Palace. Or imagine being invited to visit the White House and meeting the American president in the Oval Office. That would be a story to tell the grandkids, wouldn't it? But imagine this. You meet the Lord. The Lord. The, the king over every king, over every president. Imagine seeing his glory. Imagine being overwhelmed by his holiness. Imagine seeing him seated on his heavenly throne. Imagine seeing his heavenly entourage. Imagine having a conversation with him. Imagine being commissioned by this God who, who rules over all to bring a message to his people. Well, that's what happens to Isaiah 
on this day. This day wasn't just a, a day that Isaiah would never forget. It would quite literally change the course of his life. Isaiah chapter 6 shows us where Isaiah the prophet begins, how he became a prophet to the people of Judah. Now, you'll notice that the, the chapter neatly divides into two halves. Uh, first of all, we have Isaiah's vision of the Lord in verses 1 to 7, and then we have Isaiah's commission from the Lord in verses 8 to 13. So Isaiah here sees the Lord. But let's look at this chapter a bit more carefully. First of all, verses 1 to 7, Isaiah's vision. Isaiah's vision. So Isaiah has a vision of the holy and glorious God. And the first verse locates the time and the place of that vision as well as summarizing its content. Look at verse 1. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was seated on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now King Uzziah died in about 740 BC. Uzziah or Azariah as he's also known began his reign at the age of 16 and in total, he reigned over Judah for 52 years. In many ways, he was a good king. Although he didn't remove the, the pagan shrines from the land, he seemed to start well. His policies brought peace and stability to Judah. But it seems that power went to his head, and he grew proud. Although he started well, he didn't finish well. In fact, he died in disgrace. He unlawfully took the role of a priest and entered the holy place of the temple to burn incense there. As he was being challenged by the priests, his skin broke out with leprosy. And from that day until the day he died, he lived in isolation away from the people, unable to rule over them. And it's the year of Isaiah's death when Isaiah sees the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem. And, and look at how God is described here. He's above all powers. He's sovereignly in control of everything. He's seated on his throne. And his royal robe fills Isaiah's vision because it, it fills the temple. Notice that God is described here in relation to his throne and his robe and his exalted position, but there's no attempt made to describe God himself. In verse 2, we're introduced to the seraphim, or more literally, the burning ones. In the ancient world, kings were sometimes depicted being guarded by a pair of, uh, of burning winged servants. And, and that's what we see here. We're told that each seraph has six wings. Two wings covered their faces, showing that they, they couldn't look 
and a holy God. Two wings covered their feet, probably showing modesty, and with two wings they flew. And they were calling out to one another, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The first thing that confronts Isaiah is the holiness of God. Repeated three times for emphasis, he's not just holy, he's three times holy. He's the holiest of the holy. The Lord who reigns over all is a God of absolute moral purity. He's very different to Uzziah, the proud king of Judah. He's very different to us. The other attribute of God that's chorused by the seraphim is his glory, which fills not just the temple, but the whole earth. His heavenly holiness is revealed in earthly glory. The earth declares the glory of its creator. And as the the seraphim call to one another, verse 4, their their words shake the foundations, as if warning Isaiah not to come any closer, not not to attempt to, to cross over the entranceway into God's holy presence. And the temple was filled with smoke so as to obscure Isaiah's vision of this awesome God. And verse 5, Isaiah cries, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I've seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, although the Lord has been described as a king in these verses already, this is the first time he's given that title. King Uzziah's kingship was a a pale reflection of the true king of all. And to suggest that Isaiah is petrified by being in the presence of God is to put it mildly. Notice he thinks it's all over. He thinks that he's going to be destroyed. I'm not not sure that we really feel the shock value of these words. I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Because God tells Moses on Mount Sinai, back in Exodus 33 verse 20, that he couldn't see his face and live. The the pressing question here then is, how will Isaiah survive this encounter with God? As King Isaiah discovered at great personal cost, you can't just breeze into the presence of the holy God. Isaiah recognizes he's in grave danger because he's a sinner and he's in the presence of, of a holy God. 
In particular, he's aware of his filthy lips and that he belongs to a people of filthy lips. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus reminds us that our mouths speak what our hearts are full of. Our mouths are an indicator of our hearts. It's actually an important way for Christians to gauge their spiritual lives. What dominates your conversation? What do you speak about? Do you speak often about God and his love? Do your words build others up or tear people down? Are you known for your angry words, your bitter words, your judgmental words, your harsh words, your crude words? Well, it's Isaiah's unclean lips that he becomes aware of in God's holy presence. The thing that he notices about himself is just how grubby his life really is. Now, I want to suggest to you that the same will be true in our Christian lives. The more clearly we see God the more we will be aware of our own sinfulness. Christian maturity brings not only a clearer vision of who God is, but also a clearer vision of who we are. See, we we realize that, that God is Lord, and we are not. That the God is holy, and we are not. That God is glorious, and we are not. As we walk further into the light, God will reveal more of the dark recesses of our hearts. And you know, often we, we, we kid ourselves into thinking, don't we, that we're, we're good people. But as we grow in our understanding about God, we're forced to realize that we're worse than we thought. That our personal standards of what constitutes what's right are far too low when compared to the standards of a holy God. See, it's it's not just one or two areas of my life that have been affected by sin. It's everywhere. My thoughts, my attitudes, my actions, it's everywhere. And we would quickly despair about being so thoroughly sinful except for the amazing grace of God in our lives. The one who's at work within us by his spirit clearing out the rubbish of sin day by day. But more than that, the one who's provided a way for sin to be atoned for. There's a wonderful line in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, 
one of the children who goes to Narnia through the wardrobe asks if Aslan the lion is safe to be near. In the stories, Aslan represents Jesus. And this is the reply. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And that's what we see here. Isaiah realizes that he's not safe in God's holy presence because of his sin. But what we see next highlights God's amazing goodness towards rebellious people. Look at verses 6 to 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. From the altar, from the place of blood sacrifice, one of the seraphim takes a live coal and applies it to Isaiah's lips. His unclean lips are purged by fire. And as he does so, that the seraphim declares that the guilt of his lips is taken away and his sin atoned for. More literally, Isaiah's sin has been covered in the way that someone might cover a debt on our behalf. The price was paid for his sin. Now, as Christians under a new covenant, we look to another place of sacrifice for our atonement. It's not a burning coal that removes the guilt of our sin. It's a dying saviour. The source of our forgiveness is not an animal sacrifice on an altar, but the sacrifice of God's own dear son on the cross. That's what we're going to be remembering today at the communion table. The full and final atonement for sin that's available through the cross of Jesus to all who put their faith in him. But that brings us to the second half of the chapter. Having been cleaned up for God's presence, Isaiah is now commissioned for God's service. That's what we see next. In verses 8 to 13, Isaiah's commission. Now, just a, a few times in our married life, Kathy has taken a trip away from home, and I've found myself looking after the children on my own. Generally, that's gone okay, apart from one thing. After washing and drying the clothes, how are you meant to know where those clothes go? Which wardrobe they're meant to go into? I'm really bad at that. And a number of times I had the children come to me with a, a piece of clothing in their hands and a look of utter disbelief on their faces because they discovered clothes in their rooms that didn't belong to them. See, for me, getting the clothes in the right place was a, a tough assignment, and it left my children longing for their mother. 
Well, Isaiah is given a tough assignment. One that actually makes my clothes problem seem extremely insignificant. He's commissioned to bring God's word to people who don't want to hear what he's going to say. People who will reject his message. Now, this part of the chapter can be summarized by two questions. The first is God's question. The second is Isaiah's. Uh, First of all, then, verses 8 to 10, whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? If we can have the next slide. Whom shall I send? The Lord asks who should be sent as his representative to the people of Judah. And Isaiah responds, send me. But I wonder how he felt after he was told what his ministry was to be. These verses show us, don't they, that following God is far from easy at times. Isaiah's faithful service would be costly service. So what does God call Isaiah to do? Well, he's to bring the the people of Judah a message that superficially they, they see and hear but can't comprehend. The the people of Judah would remain hardened by sin and unbelief and unmoved by Isaiah's message. Which brings us to the final question of the chapter. How long, O Lord? Verses 11 to 13. How long, O Lord? Okay, it's, it's a tough assignment, says Isaiah. But, but how long will the people be unresponsive like this? Like, how long do I need to wait? I, I could tough it out for 10 years, maybe even 20, if there's going to be revival after that. But God says there would be no revival after that. No revival in his lifetime. People would continue in their sins. Things would end in the near destruction of the people of Judah in punishment because of their sin. Verse 13. Only a remnant, a stump, would survive. Now we must realize that sometimes that's what God calls his people to. We we faithfully hold out the gospel of Jesus to others. But we don't see large numbers of people turn into Christ. We don't see the revival we'd hope for. It may be that faithfulness to Jesus will result in small returns for us and little spiritual fruit in our generation. But, you know, it's so important for us to realize that God isn't just the God of our generation he's the god of history history itself is in his hands see in 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 time the people of judah would be overwhelmed by the might of the babylonians because of their sin but as the end of the chapter makes clear things weren't over for god's people god had a plan 
a plan that continued unwaveringly throughout the generations. Just a few pages on, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, Isaiah tells us about a shoot that would come from the stump of David's family. There's a promise of one who would come to rescue his people from their sin once and for all. Another king like David. In other words, it's, a, it's the promise of the Messiah. One who would come filled with God's spirit. One who would delight in doing God's will as the people of Judah were meant to do. You see, Isaiah wouldn't see that prophecy come true in his own lifetime. His ministry would be a long, hard slog. His ministry would largely be for the benefit of those who came after him, people like us. It would be over 700 years before the Messiah came. But in God's good time, this spirit-filled king did come to deal finally with our deepest problems, the curse of sin and death in our lives. And you know, we're fortunate enough to know something that Isaiah didn't know. His name. Jesus. Let's pray.